Well, good morning once again, everybody. Welcome to those of you, again, that are with us online this morning, and a special good morning for the first time in a long, long time to those of you that are gathered over at the Spanish Trail Campus today. I'm still looking forward to seeing each and every one of you in person. Not sure when that's going to happen, but we'll get over there just as soon as we can. But from all of us here at the Nine Mile Campus, welcome to each and every one of you that have gathered together at our beloved Spanish Trail location this morning. In fact, family, let's give them a great welcome today. It's just good for all of Hillcrest to be together. Y'all ready to uh, have some live preaching this morning? Amen. Take your Bible. Second book in the Bible today is the book of Exodus, and chapter 15 is where we're going to be uh, for a few minutes this morning. Exodus chapter 15 today. One of the, I'm going to talk with you for a few minutes this morning about the subject of tension. Y'all ever experienced tension in your life? Oh, man. Uh, a part of living a successful life is learning to live with the tension. And there's a lot of tension in life. There's the tension that we often experience between times of joy and times of grief. We've had several families over these last weeks that have lost loved ones, and they've had to perform funerals with only a relative handful of people. Can you imagine having to make a decision on which family can attend a funeral and which family can't? And yet that's been the experience of many over these last several weeks. There is the tension between the happy and the sad, and there's the tension between living in times of prosperity and living in times of need. A lot of our own people have had to experience loss of employment, loss of income. Those of us that haven't are incredibly blessed, and we need to know it. And we also need to do our best to put ourselves in the shoes of those because there's an obligation that God gives to each and every one of us to meet needs where they exist in the brotherhood, not just from some fund in the church. If you know a need personally and you can help meet the need and alleviate the need, can I just remind everybody, it is your responsibility and mine to step into it and do it. We live within the tension of times of certainty and times of confusion. When we started this year at Hillcrest, I had everything figured out. I knew how the whole year, we had the whole year planned. I had my whole preaching planned for this year. You want to make God chuckle? Just hand him your plans. (laughs) Hand him your plans. Because oftentimes our certainties get turned on their head really quick. Sometimes we have to live in the tension of the bitter and the sweet. And those of you that have been around for a while would be quick to testify amen to that. Because if you've got a few years under your belt, you know that's exactly what life is. Bitter, sweet. Sometimes they're bitter, other times they're sweet. And if you're going to live with a skip in your step, and a smile on your face. You better learn how to live in the land of tension. Frankly, that's what this pandemic has been like over the last 11 weeks. Part of it's just been so frustrating. There has been bitterness. When the church can't gather together, when we can't fellowship with one another, 
when we lose the valuable momentum, we had baptized more people in January and February than we had in any January and February in the history of our church. We were on track to have this incredible, fruitful, and, and, and God-blessed year. So to lose that momentum is kind of a bitter thing. I mean, all the mask wearing, I'm looking out, I don't know whether you're going to say amen or stick up this morning. You know, I, there's masks all over the place today. Travel restrictions. I don't like to be told where I can and cannot go and when I can and cannot go there. Freedom-limiting requirements, enough to drive you to distraction. And yet, in the face of all of that that would cause a degree of bitterness, as I look back in my own family, can I just say, these past 11 weeks from a family perspective have been some of the sweetest in my life. I mean, my son moved back home. You wouldn't, you think there'd be a, bit, a degree of bitterness with that. He moved back home from Birmingham. Piled in, life of the party, come back home. Man, we'd have dinner together old school like we used to do before they all got grown up and scattered out. We'd set the dinner table, put the leaf in it, spread it out. And then afterwards, we'd play games and we'd work puzzles and we'd watch movies. For part of that time, my future daughter-in-law came over and hung out with us for like two weeks. I didn't think she's ever going home. But that was some of the, talk about Time to bond with the next person who's coming in to our family later this year. Man, we found out, Judy and I did, we're going to be grandfolks over the pandemic. Grandfolks. I deal with a lot of people still can't believe I'm a day over 35, and so that's going to be hard for them to believe, but it's true. You're looking at PJ. Everybody calls me PJ, Pastor Jim. Pastor Jim, PJ stands for Papa Jim now. Papa Jim, amen. So we find that out. It's been a good time. So as different as life is for all of us, uh, from person to person, the one thing I know that we all have in common is that we have to, take to, lear we have to learn to take the good with the bad. We got to learn to live in the land of tension, to navigate the tension between the bitter and the sweet. That's what Israel was forced to do. And, and they had to do it in the wake of one of the greatest miracles in the Bible. Exodus chapter 15, beginning in verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. And therefore, it was named Mara. That's what the word means. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians for I am the Lord, your healer. They came to Elim where there were 12 springs of water 
and 70 palm trees, and they encamped by the water. Now, you know much of this story. We love the book of Exodus. Everybody loves Exodus. Even many lost people have come to know much of the story of the book of Exodus through the Disney animation and through watching annual movies. I mean, we get our understanding of Moses more from Charlton Heston than from the Bible. And so Exodus is very familiar, and the reason that we love it is because of all of the powerful stories that we learn from this incredible book. Israel has walked through the Red Sea, maybe the most prolific miracle anywhere in the Bible. And now they're having to learn to live life in a new kind of way. They had only been accustomed to life one way, and that is bondage. For 400 years, the people of God had lived under the captivity and under the iron thumb of the greatest social, economic, military power in the world, the land of Egypt. And now they were having to learn to live in a different kind of way, learning to live as a free people under the leadership of a holy God. And what happens to them is something that I think tends to happen to us as uh, people from the time that we're saved and become followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Namely, there are times, is it not true, that your expectations about God will not always jive with reality? Your expectations about life won't always be met. Again, Israel hadn't known anything but centuries of bitterness. And what they expected, apparently, the moment that God set them free, was a life totally marked by the absence of bitterness. And that's not what they got. And when it wasn't what they got, because it was a false expectation, they murmured and they grumbled and they indicted the mighty hand of God who alone had set them free. They had to learn to live in the land of tension. The Lord was taking them to the promised land. That was His promise, and there was no question about it. But the Lord was taking them to the promised land only after a necessary time in the wilderness. And it's no different for any one of us. The minute we're saved, we begin a journey. In fact, we're as good as already in the promised land. Amen. God saves us, and He has raised us and made us already in the supernatural realm to set together with Christ in the heavenly places. We're as good as already there, but we're not there yet. It's the tension between that which we know we have already, but that which we don't have yet. And this is life for all of us, and that was Egypt. So we have to learn how to occasionally walk through a desert. And know that God allows that to happen from time to time. And sometimes, not only does God allow it, sometimes God's the one taking us through it. And He's doing it on purpose. He's doing it intentionally so that you can become more like Christ. And never forget that suffering, wilderness wandering, was a part of even the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christian life is a bittersweet journey. Most of you know that. And it typically involves four very important stages. This is what we're going to talk about today. Stage one of the journey is the beginning of the journey, marked by what we might call praise. There's nothing like the joy. Do you remember the day you got saved? Amen. You remember the day that you met the Lord? If you don't remember the day you met the Lord, you probably need a day where you meet the Lord. Because the day that you're delivered from the 
dominion of the devil into the dominion of the Lord, the day that you're delivered from darkness into everlasting light, the day that you're set free from the bondage of sin and given the righteousness of Jesus Christ is a day that radically and cataclysmically transforms your life, and it will be a day that you never, there'll be nothing fuzzy about it. When God saves you, it is absolute freedom, total deliverance, deliverance from sin, deliverance from oppression, it's deliverance from grief, deliverance from disappointment, deliverance from the guilt of your past, and so much more. That's why the happiest that you'll ever typically be is in the wake of your first encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. You're set free. And in that moment, I don't think you're ever more aware than you've been set free. The first part of Exodus 15, the people of Israel realized that same thing. Man, when they saw those waters of the Red Sea part, when they walked through all two million of them on dry ground, and they got to the other side, and they saw the officials of the greatest cavalry in the world, the Egyptian army, get swallowed up by the sea coming back together. It radically changed their life, and it was marked by something of a revival service that involved singing and dancing. They apparently weren't Baptist. The Bible says at the beginning of chapter 15 that Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider, he is thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. Then Miriam the prophetess, verse 20 says, the sister of Aaron took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. Man, I'm telling you, that's, you may not actually do that when you meet the Lord, but if you don't feel like doing it, you probably haven't met the Lord. Man, when the power of God and the might of God and the deliverance of God, you realize all that He can do for you and that He alone can do for you, it'll make you want to dance with joy. Now, when we're saved, we got a long way to go. Salvation is not the finish line, it's just a starting gun, isn't it? of a life where we need to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, where we have to learn to become sanctified and become more like Christ. But when Jesus moves into your life, when God delivers you from bondage, there's a wonderful change. As the old song says, what a wonderful change in my life has been wrought since Jesus came in to my heart. But what happens next is where the tension comes in. And there's always tension that follows initial praise. And that is pressure. That's stage two of the journey. Praise will always be followed by pressure at some point. Becoming like Christ is a growth process. It's long-term. The theological word for it, as I mentioned a moment ago, is sanctification. Becoming righteousized, we might say. Becoming more. You're given the perfect righteousness of Christ from the moment of your sa that you're saved, but it, it doesn't transform your practical life immediately. Not everything about you changes. We still carry around a body of sin, and our life is lived in such a way that we have to day by day crucify the flesh, or we'll live in the flesh, this side of heaven. So Christian growth is this long, winding, never-ending process where God develops us into a life of holiness. And there's no such thing, by the way, as growth apart from pressure. 
I mean, you need a degree of pressure. That's how diamond is made, for crying out loud. Diamonds cannot be formed from carbon without intense pressure, stress. And it begins the moment that you become a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ and a threat to the devil and his kingdom. What's the first thing you read here in Exodus 15? Once the music stops in the revival service that takes place in the opening verses, you read it in verse 22, then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea and they went into the wilderness. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. What happened? They went from deliverance to the desert. And the desert in the Bible is always a place of testing. Moses says as much in verse 25. There the Lord tested them. You know, in the Christian life, I think uh, it's important for us to have the right expectations. So many people have false expectations about God, unbiblical expectations about God. And one of those expectations should be the understanding that your faith will be tested as a follower of Christ. Your faith will be tested early. Your faith will be tested often. Jesus began his own ministry with his incredible mountaintop experience of a baptism where the skies were open and the voice of God boomed and the Spirit descended like a dove. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And you turn the page from Matthew 3 to chapter 4, and the first thing that Jesus encounters after that mountaintop experience is the desert of the devil where he spends a lot longer than three days without spiritual water. So your faith is going to be tested because our Lord's was. As believers today, we live in what's known as a time between the comings of the Lord Jesus Christ, otherwise known as the last days. You all realize we're living in the last days, don't you? Church has been saying that for 2,000 years, and every Christian that said it over the last 2,000 years has been right. Because the last days, by biblical definition, is the period of time between the first coming of Jesus at Bethlehem and the second coming of Jesus to the Mount of Olives. That period of time, for whatever period of time it is, is the last days, the period between the comings of Christ. Jesus came the first time to deliver us from the bondage of sin. He'll come a second time to bring all things to an ultimate conclusion in himself so that all of us who know him by faith will be able at that time to say, we have finally and forever come home to Christ. And we look forward to that wonderful day. But in the meanwhile, we ain't living in heaven. Our hearts are there. But our bodies are stuck in a sin-fallen, broken world that's going to get worse before it gets better. But it will get better. And so along the way, never forget, just like with Israel, the same is true for us. We are on, like them, a road to the promised land. But the road to the promised land is a wilderness road. It's a long, winding, threatening, and often dangerous road. And it's on that road that God stretches us, that God shapes us, that He molds us, not only so that we can grow and become stronger and learn to reflect His character, but also so that we develop a deeper faith. It's been a long time since I told you God has a purpose for each and every one of your life, and that is to grow you into a person of gigantic faith. Gigantic faith. And that doesn't happen with an occasional group meeting here and there. 
It takes a long, winding road with some periods of pressure interspersed. And that's his plan for every believer, or as we say at Hillcrest, for all y'all, for everybody. And the Bible paints it in black and white. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in the suffering, that's what it says, but rejoice that you share in Christ's sufferings so that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. That's the second coming right there. That's what we're waiting for. That is the blessed hope for which Christ resides in us. And the trick is to learn to rejoice when you're walking on a desert road. To learn to rejoice when you're walking in the wilderness. That's when you're able to do that. When you're able to rejoice on the wilderness road. That's a sign of maturity. And it usually takes a while to develop. Because there is a typical stage three in this journey of growth, and that is from praise to pressure to protest. Now, I wrote this message a long time ago, and talk about timing, right? I mean, I didn't write that phrase right there two days ago, three days ago. I wrote it several days ago. But this is what has been happening in our country for the last, not only for the last week, but for the last several weeks. First, with respect to the virus, people have been protesting loss of freedom, loss of economic sustenance, take us back to work now with matters of race and social injustice. There are times when protest is a good thing. I'm thankful to live in a country where we're free to protest, aren't you? Because some things need to be protested, some people need to be protested. But there's a big difference between protesting against injustice and systemic institutional racism. And there's a big difference between protesting against stupid people. Can I have an amen this morning? And protesting against a holy God. The big difference. And there's a lot of God's people that protest against God because they perceive that God is not just. That's borderline blasphemous to make a statement like that. Israel was at that point. It was a legitimate pressure point. They were in the desert, and they had no what? They had no water. I could even hear that through the masks this morning. That's right. They had no water. That's, that's a bad deal to be in a desert. That's the one thing you got to have in a desert. In fact, they'd been without water, the Bible says here, for three days, which when it comes to matters of hydration is not a good thing. That's the outer limits. You're going down and you're going down fast after three days with no hydration because you cannot function, you cannot live without water. So the need is real. But can I just say this morning, no less real than the needs that are represented by many people in this room and many people in this audience today. You have very real needs. I mentioned a moment ago, there are some of our people, many people in our country, by the millions who have suffered economically in ways that they never saw coming. And a lot of people don't have any positive prospects for the future. They don't know what they're going to do. Some have had medical issues that you're dealing with, difficult medical issues, threatening medical issues. 
Some have experienced death in their families, living now on a wilderness road of transition in their own home. And they're in a place that they don't know how to speak the language. They don't, they're, they're uncomfortable with the terrain because they've not been there before. Some have children in prison. <clears throat> Some have parents in poor health. I, I could name more than a handful of people in our church that have family members in probably the most threatening place in America today, which are care centers. And they live from day to day not knowing what kind of report they're going to get about mom or dad. So these are all real needs, and there's probably a hundred more that we could name. And so often what happens is we look at those and we compare them to what we have done for the Lord, for who we are in the Lord, and we see them as perceived injustices. And what's the initial reaction? You rebel. You resist. You get ticked off at God, and the first thing you do, silently or vocally, is your protest against God. That's what Israel did. Verse 23, when they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah, bitter. And the people grumbled against Moses. They grumbled against Moses, who they just had on their shoulders three days earlier. What shall we drink? Only they said it probably not as nice as I just did. Now, you can imagine the disappointment because here they come to Myra, and the first thing that they see is a pool of water. And immediately everybody goes diving for the pool. Probably wasn't a big pool, and there's a whole bunch of them. And so everybody's probably trying to box one another out to get to the pool first, and then they get into it. And the first thing that happens is this acrid, searing uh, sensation happens the minute they start to gulp. And the first thing, it's like drinking ocean water. The first thing they had to do was immediately spit it out because it was not drinkable water. It was bitter water, unfit for human consumption, bitter And for the people of Israel, who were already exasperated, they moved from exasperation to total despair because they felt like they were left with only two choices, much like the choices that many people in third world countries are faced when there's a great cholera epidemic. There may be water, but your only two options is to not drink the water and die or drink the water and die. That's not a good place to be in. And that's where the nation of Israel is. They had a problem they couldn't fix. And their exasperation was driven by fear. And the end result, because they were living in fear, was to shake their fist and indict the mighty hand of God, who alone was the one who had set them free. And God not being there in front of them, They vocalize it against Moses, who a mere 36 hours ago or so was standing over the Red Sea with his arms stretched wide, staff of God in one hand, and miraculously parted the water. These were a people who had not learned. They had a a lip service trust in God only. They hadn't learned to really trust God with their life. And because of that, we find that the water wasn't the only thing that was bitter. So was their hearts. And their bitterness showed. 
And when it showed, it poisoned the water of family unity and family harmony. And that's always the worst kind of poison. Much of that, of course, driven by the anxiety that's caused by pressure. There's a reason that Jesus talks so much about learning to let your responses be driven by faith and and not by fear. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, the Sermon on the Mount, right in the middle of it. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. That's one of the most recognized commands of Christ and the most difficult to appropriate in a human life. Because we're by nature creatures of fear when we feel like we can't control a situation. Don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, about your body, what you will put on. For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. And that's what you have to remember. That's a good verse right there to keep on your bathroom mirror, to keep on the dashboard of your car. Because life is uncertain, and we've lived in the midst of some of the greatest uncertainty that I can ever remember in my life. I have a little bit of memory about growing up in the heat of the Vietnam conflict and all of the protests and all of the, uh, of the societal upheaval. I was a, a little boy during that period, but I can remember, I remember Walter Cronkite. Can I have an amen? John Chancellor, David Brinkley, y'all know what I'm talking about. I can remember watching those guys on black and white television. I just, now I sound like a grandfather. But this is, I mean, in my adult life, I've never experienced anything like what we've been through. Uncertainty. It's still a degree of that. None of us know what's going to happen. But God knows. God knows. And God's not given us a spirit of fear, but of power. And it's in times like these where we're stretched. These are pressure moments. And what's revealed is the depth of our maturity. Do we really believe the things we say we believe? about God, about His Word, about the promises of the Bible, 365 of them in the Bible. Fear not, fear not, fear not, don't be afraid. Be strong and of good courage. So God knows your need. Knows it before you ever voice it to Him. And that leads to the fourth stage of our wilderness journeys, which is provision. Aren't you thankful that we have a God who's promised to provide and to meet our needs? That's the thing about being in the wilderness Most of the time when you're in the wilderness and you know you're in the wilderness, you begin to feel like you're alone in the wilderness and you have to fend for yourself in the wilderness. And it's in these moments that you have to remember God knows and God hears. And that's one of the great statements, by the way, that came from God when Moses met him for the first time at the burning bush back in Exodus chapter 3. Exodus 3 and verse 7, then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. Isn't that wonderful? If you're taking notes in your Bible, you should underline those three phrases where God said, I have seen, I have heard. And I know, I am concerned. And that's the same thing that's true about us. True here with respect to Israel. People grumble to Moses. But you know, Moses had learned a few things by now. 
And his response is the right response. He's learned how to handle a difficult situation in a spiritual kind of way, which wasn't always the case for Moses. And unfortunately, would not always be the case with Moses, even in the days ahead of him. But here he gets it right in verse 25. What did Moses do in response to the pressure moment? And Moses cried to the Lord. Amen. That's exactly what he should have done. Moses cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him. He talked to God. And God spoke to him, showed him a log. And Moses picked up the log and threw it into the water. Reminds me of the Geico commercial of the woodchucks throwing that wood into the water. You woodchucks quit chucking my wood. Moses picked up a log and chucked it, threw it right into the water. And another miracle of God happened. Even in the midst of the grumbling, that's grace. The water became sweet. Moses knew there wasn't a single thing he could do about it. Let me let you in on a little secret. I don't know what to do about coronavirus. I don't know what to do about the racism that exists in people's hearts. I mean, no amount of brainstorming can fix things like that. No amount of quick thinking can make bitter water drinkable. But Moses knew that God could do something about it. He knew that God could provide, and God did provide, even to a bunch of grumblers who had just walked through a divided sea on dry ground and who should have by this time had a deeper level of trust in a God that they should have known would take care of their needs. When you read the book of Exodus, never forget that the book of Exodus isn't principally about Moses. It's about God. It's a book about God, about God is always present with his people and about how the presence of God ought to change everything about the way a people of God see and respond to life. God's presence is a guarantee of God's provision. Never forget that. And if God is with us, God will always provide for us. It's one of the greatest promises in the Bible. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Thank God we have a Lord who is sovereign, who rules and reigns on a throne. And as he rules and reigns on a throne, he not only knows our need, he's concerned about our need. In fact, our living Lord is concerned about every nanosecond of the life that we live. And if we have a need, if we have a need in this place this morning, never doubt that God has seen it, that God is working in it, and that in his way and in his time, God will address it. Make no mistake, our God rules our God is present, and our God will always provide to those who are His. Amen. And that's the wilderness journey. From praise to pressure, from protest to provision, through both the bitter and the sweet. Never forget it. If God is with you, God will not only fight for you, God will provide for you 
Because the power of God is always revealed through the presence of God. And the presence of God is always promised to the people of God. God is with us and blessed be the name of the Lord. Can you say amen this morning?